Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro. To learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into what is a very special episode of The Scoop. We are thrilled to have one of Long Island's proudest sons, a man who really needs no introduction, Anthony Scaramucci, the Mooch, the founder of Fund of Funds, Skybridge Capital. Anthony, I think you did this on purpose or in anticipation for coming on the show, but you dropped a really big investor letter on Monday that said the fund was moving some cash into some of the biggest funds yeah. in the investing world, Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Associates, Howard Marks's Oak Tree Capital. Dan um, Loeb, third point. Dan Loeb, third point as well. So we're going to talk about that. It's interesting to me, Anthony, because are we going to talk about this porn star mustache too? Though I just we will. Because, we're going to okay, right, get, get, get into that. I've inspired okay. many people to grow similar mustaches. Mike Novogratz, yeah. Ryan Todd, as well. I saw Novo's uh, stash the other day, but he's got a lot of hair dye in that stash, man. Because I know he's bald like a cue ball, <laughs> but when it comes in, it's gray. Yeah. So I don't, no, I don't get the whole. He's dying. I mean, hey, listen. When you get to a certain age, that's what you got to do. I'm upset that my colorist won't won't see me. I mean, come on, who's kidding who? We have. To I got enough. Bo- I got safe. enough Botox, so you could water ski over my forehead. Look at it; it's like a sheet of glass. Okay, so I <laughs> I still got a couple months to go on the Botox, but the the hair dye, man, I'm getting worried. You're fine on the Botox. The hair's not that bad. You look great, and we appreciate you coming on. Let's quickly talk about this switch. Right, it was after a brutal first four months for the firm, with the flagship fund being down 24. percent But you guys aren't alone, right? I mean. The first couple months of the year were brutal for so many funds. We're starting to see a turnaround, though, in April. Uh, Eureka Hedge Hedge Fund Index has funds picking up on average 3.7% in April. So before we dive into the macro picture, I want to get your thoughts on Bitcoin. I want to talk about your first interview at Goldman Sachs, all sorts of different things. But what do you think's changed in the fund landscape in April compared to the beginning of the year? Well, the Fed, I mean, just the massive liquidity that the Fed is introducing into the markets is reflating asset prices. But I think that uh, for us, we've always been in structured credit. And so when you're layered in structured credit like we were, you can't have a pandemic because what happens is you're hitting pause on the economy. The economy is going from full employment to 22% unemployment. That's the U6 number, just so everybody's clear. That's everybody. That's not the fictitious U1 number of 14%, but the U6 number is people looking for jobs after a year and people 
who have disaffected and stopped looking for jobs that really would like one. So you went from 3.5% to 22% in six weeks, and that seizes the credit markets, that seizes the mortgage markets. And so, you know, our competitors lost more than us. I mean, structured credit was down anywhere from 40 to 70%. We came in fairly hedged. You know, we were only about 50% net long. That's why we only lost 22, 23. The reason we're up, we're down 24 now is my team and I, we sold a very large piece of the portfolio in a secondary market so that we could create the liquidity necessary to go into Loeb and uh, Dalio and Howard Marks. But, you know, the short answer to your question is, is that the Fed is inducing tremendous amounts of liquidity. They're introducing it into the markets and it's raising the asset prices. And we're going to be a part of that. We're going to participate in that. How is that capital going to be allocated amongst those various funds? Is it their flagship funds? Is it yeah. credit funds? In Ray Dalio's case, it's his pure alpha 18% volatility. That's sort of the juiciest fund that he has. And yep. that's what I call that the quantitative easing trade fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, that fund has been closed since 2007. And so it, it's a first time opening. I'm good friends with Ray. And uh, I, I asked for uh, capacity there. We put $100 million in May 1. I'd like to get it to 250 by July 1. And I think he's going to do phenomenally. He was up 40 plus percent in 2009 coming out of the uh, last crisis. And so I think he's going to do phenomenal. He got hit pretty hard in uh, March. As you know, his fund was down like mine. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm the poster boy for this stuff because I have a big mouth, as you guys know. Yeah. And so even though guys were doing worse than me and guys lost more money than me, you know, I'm getting lit up in the press. So that's fine. I'm a big boy. I can take it, you know. Uh, Howard Marks, that's a distress fund. I think there's a gajillion dollars going to be made in distress. And then lastly, Dan Loeb has been, I've been a client of Dan's for 10 years. I just want to get bigger in his fund. And I'm not done yet. You know, I've got two, possibly three more all world Hall of Fame money managers are going to end up in this portfolio. So we're taking advantage of the crisis. Uh, We're basically going to be uh, adding money into funds that you couldn't get access to prior to the crisis. I think Ray Daly would probably take issue with you getting maybe more unfavorable coverage. Uh, he is he often spars with the Wall Street Journal. But yeah. you're right. I mean his fund the Not in the last six weeks. He's been he's been no he's enjoyed the last he's, six weeks. He's they're enjoyed coming, some coverage yeah, recently. Coming for me. They'll come for him. They, well they'll come yeah, for you now. Everybody gets their time yeah, uh, that's all right. I'm a big boy. You're I, used it's to it. my time in the barrel. I'm okay. Have you ever been tabloid? Have you ever been on the front page of the New York Post? After I have that not. shit happens to you, you actually don't. Not yet, well, but it's when, happening. When it's, it's coming for Frank. Happens, especially given that mustache, <laughs> you're going to be in a full-blown cartoon. But yeah. when, when it does happen, after that, you don't care about anything. Are you yeah. allowed to curse on this podcast or no? Yep, we, yeah, we do that After you sometimes. get tabloid in the New York Post, you don't give a shit about anything. <laughs> So Dalio's fund was down 20% in 2020, kind of epitomizing this broader picture. Let's talk about the markets for a second. You have mentioned the Fed liquidity that has been pumped into the economy. You were on, um, I think it was CNBC not too long ago, talking about how much you love the $6.4 trillion of Federal Reserve liquidity being injected into the market. You said at the time that you thought that the markets hit a bottom on March 23rd. I made a similar call in our trading Slack group. Mooch, when you think about 
a V-shaped recovery. Are you saying that the stock market's bottom on March 23rd? Or are you saying that the economy, the broader sort of economic backdrop has recovered? This would be the markets. The markets are mispricing the economic recovery right now due to the level of Federal Reserve stimulus and the level of liquidity that the Fed has put into the market. So the economy is not going to probably bottom for another two, possibly three months. But then once we get back to some level of normalcy, and I don't think we're getting to full normalcy anytime soon, I sort of have this broken up into two categories. This is pre-vaccine activity and post-vaccine activity. And I don't think you're going to see tremendous movement in this economy pre-vaccine. I don't Mm -hmm. see the schools opening. I've got adult children, but I got a six and a two-year-old at home. There's no way my wife's letting them go to school in September without a vaccine or some assurance that they're not going to get COVID-19, especially now that you know that COVID-19 affects the kids and it's putting kids on ventilators. And and obviously we've had some tragedies related to children as well. So so you have a pre-vaccine, post-vaccine economy but the Fed doesn't care about that. The Fed is injecting miles and miles of liquidity. You know, let's just go over the math for everybody. Four trillion dollars. They put two trillion dollars in so far in six weeks. They were pacing at three hundred and thirty-one billion a week. They slowed it down to two fifty billion a week. They're now targeting a hundred billion a week. This is a water wall. This is a green water wall of money that is washing over the markets. And so my point on CNBC is if you watch the VIX on March 23rd, it went from like 88 to 44 in two and a half hours. To me, that was full-blown capitulation. And now with the Fed stuffing all this liquidity, and I don't see how you get back to that low. Maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, I've been wrong about a lot, obviously, because look what happened to me in March, but it doesn't feel that way. So your point is we're not going to retest new lows in the stock market, but there could be further economic data that comes out in the next couple months that- Oh, the data is going to suck. Yeah, you're going to, 20, you're suck, going to yeah. 25, 30% unemployment if they're willing to really clock it. You know, they may through Bureau and Labor Statistics slow it down. You know that there are lies, there are damn lies, and then there are statistics, right? And so they can sort of shade the statistics, but the numbers are going to suck. What the market doesn't care about though is the- short-term numbers. The market's worried about the longer-term numbers and the delta off the bottom. And so just do the math on the PPP. PPP, that $900 billion that they deployed, there's probably 35 to 40 million jobs tied to that PPP. And there's probably 16 or 7 million of them that are going to immediately come off the unemployment roll once we start to normalize as a result of the PPP. Remember, the covenants there are to accept the money and have it forgiven if you hire back the same number of employees that you shut your business down with. So and people are going to abide by that. That's going to change the differential in unemployment dramatically immediately overnight. You'll go from 25 to 30% unemployment to 11 in, you know, I would say probably a month and a half to two months. Yeah, unemployment numbers are going to continue to be brutal. I think there's two things we can dive into with that said. In terms of the Fed money printing that has just been so unabated, Anthony, how long can this be sustainable? I mean, we're at $6 trillion. Do we get to 10 How much more can they inject in this economy until we start having to worry about things like inflation or deflation? And then to what degree are we going to have to worry about the fact that people's behavior might change, right? Like 
to your point about your wife and your children, they might not be going back to school in September. Elsewhere, people may not be comfortable going to restaurants, going on cruises, um, whether or not because they don't have the money to do it or because they're just afraid of contracting this virus. So I can only give you my view. And I would say this to you that the we've learned something about the United States, it having the reserve currency, it has tremendous amount of flexibility. It can move that currency around aggressively. And as you know, the Fed is creating the dough. The Treasury is dumping a bond into the Fed, which is going on the Fed's balance sheet. And then the Fed is moving the cash over to the Treasury to deploy in the stimulus. And so if you actually look at the mechanics of that, it's costless. And at a 10-year Treasury at 61 or 70 basis points, the magnitude of interest expenses related to this stuff is also de minimis. And so I'm not a modern monetary theorist by any means, but it's reminiscent to what Richard Nixon said in August of 1971 when he pulled the pin on the dollar and he took it off the gold standard. Nixon said that we're all Keynesians now. Uh, Whether we like it or not, philosophically, we're all modern monetary theorists now because you're going to end up with four to six trillion dollars of additional deficit spending. And so I think that you'll be surprised, however, at how little inflation that there is because you're in a massive deflation right now. You're in a massive bubble contraction around the world. And when you lose just in North America, when it's all said and done, you will have lost about five and a half trillion dollars of economic output. So that's uh, about four trillion just from the shutdown and restaurants closing. And then you got another, you know, one and a half trillion on sort of what I call residual permanency, which is that restaurant's closed. It can't get reopened. You know, it takes three years for a new restaurant to show up in that space. And so that's deflationary. That's a full-blown contraction. So them replacing it with the $12 trillion that they're working on right now is not going to move the inflation needle. And again, this is another thing. It'll always last longer than you and I think. So you asked me the question, and I would say, how long can they do it for? 10 years longer than you and I think they can. But something weird happens in market psychology. When it's over, it's over. Okay, the reason why Bitcoin is starting to pick up some life and people like Paul Tudor Jones are wading into Bitcoin is they're saying, okay, when it's over, when there is a crisis of confidence in that monetary unit, then it's over. Go back to the Weimar Republic, go back to Germany. Once they lost confidence in it, it was over and they had to go to gold or they were melting gold or trading in trinkets and jewelry in that economy. That paper money lost all its tangibility, all of its exchange of value. And so is the US dollar, is that going to happen immediately? I don't believe it will. There's space for those currencies now as a result of what they're doing. Well, it's funny. I always like to have the guests we bring on who aren't in the crypto space bring up the B word first, that is Bitcoin, because I don't want to come off too much like a cryptocurrency nut. But since you brought it up and since you brought up the Paul Tudor Jones letter, we'll go there. He's concerned or anxious about a possible inflationary regime, which is what sort of drew him to revisiting Bitcoin as an investable asset. So in the letter, he talks about the unique aspect of Bitcoin. We have this happening event that took place yesterday. And the fact that 
Bitcoin, in his view, is pretty complete with other stores of value, including gold, and is actually better in some respects when you think about liquidity and the fact that it trades 24-7. So with that said, you're well-connected. You talk to a lot of investors. Is Bitcoin, has it grown up in your view? And do you think, given the macro picture, it's something that folks should be allocating 1% to 2% of their portfolio to? So because I'm not in the field, it's hard for me to answer that question because I don't understand it as well as you do. I can answer it theoretically. I can't answer it literally because I don't have any money allocated to Bitcoin in full disclosure. But after reading Paul's letter and analyzing the space for two years, doing Pompliano's podcast, talking to guys that are in the space like Novo, uh, yes. You know, and if you, if you talk to guys like Ben Mesrich or you talk to the twins, what you know is that there is a opportunity technologically coming that there can be a secure point-to-point anonymous transfer of value on stuff that is money constant, meaning you're not going to be able to create more of it. And so a result of which it's going to have some level of permanency to that value. Now, you would have to answer better than me. Is it Bitcoin, Ethereum? Is it one of these other coins that has come out? Is Bitcoin going to be among the many coins that are out there? Will Bitcoin be the Yahoo to some other digital currency, Google? I don't know the answer to that. You guys know the answer to that. But as somebody that has studied the economy and somebody that has looked at currencies for a good part of my career, there is a place for digital currency in the marketplace. And it will become, in my opinion, an acceptable asset class. Uh, how quickly? You guys are experts on that, not me. But you know, here's what I would say. We had a big rise in gold in 2010 and 11, and there were a ton of gold bugs. It wasn't just Bill Devine on every financial news channel selling coins. There was a real gold bug going on, and people said there was going to be rampant inflation because of the quote-unquote money printing. But I'll leave everybody on this podcast with a thought that they should really consider. In 1971, Richard Nixon pulling the pin on gold was $35. Today, gold went out at 17.15 per ounce two generations in 49 years. And we had to do that because we're monetizing our debt. Now, wealthy individuals do fine in that environment because they own the house or they own the building and the building goes up in value relative to inflation and all that other stuff. But it's the middle class and the lower middle class wage earner that gets wiped out. So there is an era coming where everybody's going to want to own something that is less manipulated by the governments as it relates to a store of value. I don't think you need to be totally savvy on the technical underpinnings of Bitcoin to appreciate the juxtaposition, right? That you have this incredible money printing and at the same time, this new technology, this new way of sending value that has a fixed supply. I mean, that juxtaposition is really striking. I think Jones puts Mm -hmm. it pretty well in his letter And he says straight up, right? Like crypto people kind of need to curb their enthusiasm a little bit. You mentioned the fact that we're early days. Bitcoin could be the Yahoo or it could be the Facebook or the Google. And he's not even saying that he appreciates Bitcoin in isolation, right? He is making this a, this for him, buying Bitcoin futures potentially for his fund 
is an inflation hedge. It's not a long-term crypto enthusiast speculative mm -hmm. play. It's an inflation hedge. Yeah. So I think Ryan has a question to sort of follow up on that context. Yeah, no, it's just kind of a follow up. Do you get the sense that after the Tudor letter within the macro circles, are more people talking about it now? Is it really that simple? Just the fact that yeah. Paul Tudor Jennings got in, should we consider this? Is that a thing? Well, I think it's another chink in the wall, you know, that the wall's coming down. And I think a few more sledgehammer blows like that, the wall will come down. I think that the uh, you guys are onto something, but I just want to say this so because I want you I want you to think the way the world goes and not the way we all want it to. So let me just say a few things. Like right now, you're looking at this thing: a massive inflation. This is a permanent store of value. The blockchain is going to allow us to transfer that value super secure and tight. This should really take off. But you got to remember how the world works. Okay, that's a linear thought. And what happens in the world is the world is moving exponentially. So let me give you a few examples of what I mean. Thomas Malthus, the 1830 British economist, said, I got bad news. We're going to starve. Well, what do you mean, sir? Well, we're going to starve because we're growing the population exponentially, but we can only grow the food linearly, and we're not going to have enough food, and we're going to have too many people, and we're going to starve. And so he missed a chasm of technological growth, irrigation, genetically modified food, all of these processed foods that we're able to put in packages and you know, Twinkies can last forever, et cetera. And we have more people dying from obesity-related illness than we do from starvation. Secondarily, I was sitting in a classroom in 1985 at the age of 21, and my economics teacher was telling me we're going to run out of oil. There was a theory called peak oil theory. I said, okay, when are we running out of oil? Well, 2010, we're done. We're out of oil. Oh, okay, 2010, 25 years from now. Okay, great. And then that theory missed- Negative oil. The, now we have negative oil. Yeah, yeah. All, that theory missed fracking and all of that technological growth and the efficiencies of engineering and automobile and space technology and you know everything that went on to make our use of energy more efficient and our finding of energy more abundant. And so we're sitting here right now looking at this it's going to be different. Like we're saying, holy shit, they're going to inflate the living bejesus out of our currency and we're going to be in the Weimar Republic. But 28% of the land in the United States is owned by the US government and at a spot price of $50 a barrel, I know it's cheaper than that right now, but we are in a pandemic, a spot price of $50 a barrel, you've got $60 trillion of energy under the ground of stuff that's owned by the United States. So all of a sudden, the balance of the United States, 60 plus trillion, the parks, the aircraft carriers, 70, 80 trillion dollars on the balance sheet, 30 trillion dollars of debt. It doesn't look terrible. And then you have this huge exponential wave of AI and 5G and all the stuff that's coming in sort of biomedical research. You could be in a situation where you have this major abundance going on and we never grab the inflation. And so even though I've said all that, I gave you all my bullshit, all my theoretical and philosophical bullshit, there's still a big spot for digital currencies because the digital currencies represent a frontier for early adopters and intermediate stage adopters where they're going to want to have that as a hedge. And so when you ask me about Paul Tudor Jones, yes, somebody like him, who's an old school guy, an old school macro player in his 60s, been around for 35, 40 years. They're saying, whoa, I want to own a little bit of Bitcoin here or other digital currencies in a basket 
uh, yes, he's mainstreaming that idea. He's making it accessible and it will become more available. And you got the tip of the spear of the gold rush are going to end up doing very well. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far, but real quick, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Pax Gold. Pax Gold is the world's only regulated gold token, and it's the fastest and easiest way to own and trade the highest quality physical gold. One Pax Gold token represents one fine troy ounce of a 400 ounce London good delivery gold bar stored in Brinks's vaults in London. When you buy Pax Gold, you own physical gold. The value of Pax Gold is always directly tied to the real-time market value of gold. Pax G is an ERC-20 token on Ethereum and can easily be moved or traded anywhere in the world 24-7. With Pax G, anyone can now own a fraction of an LBM-accredited London Good Delivery Gold Bar, and that's with zero storage fees. Trade it today on leading exchanges like Kraken, FTX, and Ipit, or earn interest on your Pax Gold holdings through Nexo or Crypto.com. Learn more or purchase Pax Gold at Paxos.com slash Pax Gold. You make a great point, which is to expect the unexpected, but that's not necessarily, to your point, something specific to this crisis. That's something that's specific to human history, right? There's a reason Correct. why there's the expression history rhymes. History rhymes because we constantly see the unexpected happen. And so in terms of Bitcoin's case, we saw that play out as this crisis gripped global markets, right? We wanted yes. Bitcoin and gold to perform at a higher level than US equities because there's this narrative around it being a safe haven or a hedge. But that didn't necessarily play out for the first two months, right? Bitcoin and gold were in lockstep with the S&P 500. We've only recently seen Bitcoin sort of break out a little bit, fueled by maybe the halvening, maybe the Paul Tudor Jones letter. But anyway, with that context, with all that said, in terms of your fund, we had Paul Tudor Jones come in, maybe Dalio, who has had some critical things to say about Bitcoin in the past, Maybe he comes in and, and serves as another sort of hammer against that wall. But what does it take for uh, Skybridge to feel comfortable allocating to a fund that might be dabbling in this market? Um, I'm there. So Paul's closed for new investors. But if he wasn't closed for new investors, I would be in his fund. And I have no problem owning as a pass-through through his fund some level of digital currency exposure. Uh, remember, I'm a fund of funds. I know that's an old-fashioned thing, but I love the business because I got a portfolio of all-star managers who are geniuses at what they do, and I'm able to get access to them and democratize hedge fund investing for a very large group of people. Remember, my fund has a twenty-five dollars and $50,000 minimum. I want to be the hedge fund manager for every dentist in America. You know, There's a guy drilling teeth in Davenport, Iowa. He's got a million dollars in... Uh, his life savings. Some of it's in stock, some of it's in bonds. 5% of it can be in Skybridge. And we can give him this diversified portfolio, which hopefully over many years, over a market cycle, he'll do well. If I'm getting measured over the COVID-19 month of March, I suck. But if you measure me over 15 years, we've done great. And so that's why I think it's a reflection point and a big buying opportunity for people. You know, That sort of vision that you have for the firm is almost taking a page out of the way funds are operating in China, right? Like there's a notion 
in Asia that, you know, hedge funds should be more democratized for ordinary investors that maybe doesn't exist here. That could be really interesting to get into, but it might be a little tangential. I want to be respectful of your time. Ryan, did you have a question that you wanted to hit Anthony with? So we talked about the investor community, the macro picture. I like the reference to the Malthusian mistakes. But I'm wondering if we can look at a different direction, if you have any visibility or context on how some of the core agencies are thinking about things like Libra or stable coins or even Bitcoin. Like, what's the temperature in Washington and how has it shifted, if at all? I mean, we saw in the early draft of the CARES Act, you know, a section on how to disperse the stimulus checks by way of a digital dollar. Obviously, that got scrapped. But if you read the proposal, it talks Mm -hmm. about accounts held at the Fed. I'm just wondering if you get the yeah. sense or if you have any other visibility if the technology is starting to make inroads or acceptance, uh, I guess, in Washington. They absolutely inimically hate it. And the reason they hate it is that some of their power is coming from their ability to manipulate the global markets and to manipulate the economy through the currencies. Also remember, and there's a great book on this if you guys have an interest called Treasury Wars, where the U.S. Treasury over the last years since 9-11, 19 years now almost, where they've used the economic warfare of sanctions and pressure from the Treasury to co-opt our enemies into doing what we want them to do or freezing their assets or you know blocking their ability to trade oil and things like that. It's all coming from our nation having the reserve currency. And so if you, Libra, would be an unmitigated disaster for the United States because Mark Zuckerberg is a non-governmental organization in their minds that has 2 billion potential followers that could be using his digital currency. That's why they're sticking an uh, electrical circuit on his uh, neck and screwing bolts in and electrifying him every time he goes down to Congress. They don't like it at all. And so to think otherwise would be a very big mistake. I think it's going to happen anyway. And I also think it's better for you guys that Facebook's not involved because if Facebook's not involved, it won't be as threatening to the federal government. So you'll be boiling the frog in a cold water pot with a slow burn. You're not trying to throw the frog into boiling water. But no, they absolutely hate it. I've been to Treasury in conversations with them about it. I understand why they hate it. And uh, the fact that they hate it gives me great confidence that what I'm saying is going to be true, that there's a sleeve for it and there'll be other governments that accept it because our treasury hates it. And there'll be people in the marketplace that want to do business with people that are in digital currency because of what I just said. And all of a sudden it becomes a rebel forces exchange of value. And, uh, you know, guys, I know I keep bringing up these historical things But remember, Constantine was the first Roman emperor to convert to Catholicism. For 300 years, they laughed at Christianity, right? They were all pagans. They thought Christianity was a bunch of malarkey. And then it became a widespread political movement. You know, you guys are smart guys. Is Paul Tudor Constantine? He's probably one of the proselytizers. He's probably not the... Emperor of Rome. If you told me that Jerome Powell was in Bitcoin and he was putting Bitcoin into the balance sheet of the U.S. Treasury, then I would say, okay, he's Emperor Constantine in this example, meaning you're in a rebel forces movement. 
that movement is a make sense. There's reality basis to that movement, you know, and what is the reality basis of the movement? You have a description of value, a permanency to the value, a scarcity to the value, meaning it's fixed. It's not going to be manipulated by the governments. And then you have a blockchain that's tied to it that can transfer that value to me. And I know I've received that value securely and anonymously. So right there, you have a lane in the commercial marketplace of life and you're going to get market share. And whether they like it or not, you're going to be in that lane. And so trust me, they were burning Christians and they were feeding them to lions and setting them on fire and nailing them to crosses. And then all of a sudden they had to accept the forces of what was going on. I just think it'll take longer than you guys want it to, but it will happen. There's nothing wrong with it taking long. That that kind of helps the news flow, so to speak. If this all happened in one year, I, I don't know how much of a business there'd be for research and news. But I think you make a really interesting point drawing a comparison to early Christians. It certainly felt like watching the Facebook Libra folks, David Marcus in particular, in Capitol Hill last summer, being lampooned and just completely in the midst of vitriol on Capitol Hill felt similar to what I imagine early Christians might have felt. But I guess that leads to my next question. Oh, it was was, was a circus show trial. What's the temperature on what China is doing? You know, obviously they have their own digital currency experiment. They're going to launch a version of their currency on a blockchain. Are people on Washington worried about that? I mean, they would literally, China and so many countries around the world would do anything they could to chip away at or completely remove dollar dominance and hegemony. But is this something that they should actually be worried about doing that? Do you buy the threat that this is something that can impact the dollar? I don't buy the threat today. I don't buy that threat tomorrow, but I do buy that threat over a three to 15 year period of time. Yes. You have to remember the euro is not going to be here. So, you know, you, you remember the euro is a fixed exchange rate. It's not a federalized currency. Like all that is is a fixed exchange rate mechanism with the members of the people that are abiding by it. And if Germany decides that they don't want to bail out those Southern European nations like they did Greece in 2012, that's going to break up. That's going to create more space for digital currency as people get less certain about currencies. And then obviously other nations are going to rapidly devalue their currencies to pay off their debts. And so, yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, you guys know the forces of history and the vagaries of history are on your side. And so there will be an acceptable birth, an acceptable level of market share. But it's just going to take a while. When you ask me about China, China's got so many problems, guys. Let me tell you something about China. If China does not exist in its current configuration 10 years from now, I'm not going to be surprised. The one-party systems, you want to study history? One-party systems have a life expectancy of about 70 years. You don't believe me? Mexico, 70 years. Let's go to Japan after 70 years. How about uh, Malaysia? Their 70-year run just ended. Uh, What about the Soviet Union? 1917 to 74 years, gone. Okay, and so China just celebrated their 70th anniversary as a one-party system. They're in overtime. You also, if you're really studying China, you know that it's seven very strong provinces 
that Mao clamped down on and put the full forces of the autocratic communist party to keep those things together, including Tibet. And so don't look at China the way you look at the United States. It's any way someone looks at India, India is 71 to 75 different countries woven into a tapestry that we call India. My point being is you don't know what the hell is going to happen in China. And yeah, they're a threat. They will definitely try to develop this currency. They're ahead of us in some respects with artificial intelligence, but nobody trusts them. And as effed up as we just are like as a civilization, yeah. we have enough checks. In. Yeah, but we just like, obviously, I mean, Trump's got the whole thing screwed up. He's a complete jackass. But when it comes to the United States, there's enough checks and balances and there's enough predictability in the rule of law in the United States that this will still, over the next generation, the next 25 years, still be a safe haven. I love the history, Anthony. Um, we want to be respectful of your time, so I think we'll end on just one more question. Ray Dalio said not too long ago that this recession or this financial health crisis is panning out or will pan out worse than 08. Um, when you harken back on 08, do you think that this is a worse financial crisis? It's obviously very different in terms of where it originated, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. is this going to be worse than 08 in your view? Well, it's already worse than 08. If you just look at the statistics and you look at the damage, it's worse than 08. But I think it's going to be better than 08 in the following respect, that this was a recession born from a work stoppage. 08 was a structural problem. We'd gone upside down on our banks and we created negative equity and we seized the global marketplace. This yep. is more like a national disaster or an international disaster. This is like a hurricane sweeping over the world and it forced everybody into a 9 to 12 week, 16 week work stoppage. Uh, when we leave our homes, our homes are still intact, the water infrastructure is there, the electrical grid is there, the banks are in reasonably good shape, and there's $12 trillion of governmental stimulus hitting as we re-enter the workplace. So yes, it's worse when you're measuring it on the economic dashboard, but I think that there's big upside opportunity here. And by the way, particularly in raised funds, the reason why I put money in that fund is that we're in QE infinity now. It's not QE1 or QE2, it's QE infinity. And if anybody understands QE infinity, it's Ray Dalio. And you like me saying QE infinity because that's where the digital space is. <laughs> you know, there'll be room for digital currencies in QE infinity. Well, similarly, Ray is an excellent student of history, as you have indicated throughout this show. Really interesting parallels that you've been drawing. Um, we could go on for probably another two hours talking about QE infinity, China. Bitcoin and, and the like. Your colleague's going to make his bed, though. Has he been making his bed while we're doing this podcast? Or what's he's going to he's going to get on it. We're all you know. <laughs> I mean, you really he, get to see you really get to see the other really people. I mean, this guy's got probably like. I can see you're a big. I, I just want to know is he wiping you're boogers a big on reader. The, what's that? You're a big reader. <laughs> no, no, no. I got I got books all over the place. They're stacked everywhere, man. What's what's your? Come on, I'm That's basically awesome. I'm like a Talmudic scholar with an Italian exoskeleton. Okay, don't underestimate how much I've read, you motherfuckers, okay? <laughs> All right, well, listen, you guys have a great afternoon. Stay safe, stay Thank healthy. you very much. Good luck you. to you guys at what you're doing. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Thanks Anthony. I wish you guys the best. Thanks, God bless Take you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thought you owned the villa. I still repeat.
<laughs> yeah, yeah. What's that old story when you first interview at Goldman Sachs? You wore this shiny suit or something? Or that? I was wearing a hundred percent poly. I didn't know any better. I thought I I was fully flammable from my first job interview. <laughs> I didn't know any better. Well, the right. guy Every, told me everyone, I was the worst dressed person he'd ever met. I was. <laughs> you were like, I what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I called everyone my mother. Is, She's like, "What is the guy talking about? You're like fantastically dressed. What do we know?" It yeah. was 100% poly. I had a poly shirt on, too. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.